Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you have joined us this morning. Thanks for, for being here. We're in a series uh, this spring, excuse me, this winter and spring on the book of Mark. We're looking at the second half of the book of Mark. We're returning after being away from it since uh, last spring. And as we're looking at Mark, we're, we're talking about what does it mean that, that Jesus the King has come, and what does that mean for us as we live? And this morning, we come to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Before we read that, let me just say a couple things. Uh, we're, as you're going to see uh, shortly, we're going to be talking about marriage this morning. Um, and so we put on the website some resources that might be helpful to you as you think about marriage, uh, books to read. Uh, there's some audio stuff that's worth listening to. So if you're interested in that, go to our website. And on the left-hand side, you'll see a column that says resources. Hit that, and you'll see marriage resources down at the bottom. So hopefully those will be some helpful things for you as you continue to think through this topic. As we've gotten to this section of Mark, uh, we're on the verge of Mark entering Jerusalem, uh, where he will ultimately be killed, where he will begin this last week of his life in about the last third of the book of Mark. Uh, and that happens in about another chapter. But as we're moving there, as he's moving towards Jerusalem, he is, uh, he's instructing his disciples about what it means to be a disciple, about what it means to follow him, about, as we've said, what it means to live in light of his kingship. So we've been looking at several things these last few weeks, but this, this morning, we come uh, to what it, what it means for us to live as disciples as we think about our marriages. Um, let me pray for us and then, then we'll read. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, the opportunity we have again this morning to come to your word. Would you open it for us? Would you come and bring your wisdom and your care and where needed this morning, your comfort and your conviction uh, as we think about this, uh, your words to us about marriage. We lift our prayers up to you. Give us soft hearts minds that are uh, open and ears to hear. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be looking this morning at chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 845 uh, of that Bible. And Jesus left there and went uh, to the region of Judea and be beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. And it's given to us for our good and for his glory. Now, as, as soon as we start talking about a topic like this, about uh, divorce and, and marriage, it's uh, clearly a topic for us. We live in a culture where, um, you know, the common statistic that's given is that about half of all marriages end in divorce. Some of us have uh, experienced divorces of spouses. Some of us have known friends who've been divorced. Um, Every one of us knows at least someone who has gone through divorce, and there are some in this room certainly that have gone through divorce ourselves, and so it is a relevant topic for us. Some people in this room are 
may be contemplating divorce. Maybe some have in the past or some will at some point in the future. You see, so the Pharisees' question to Jesus, it, it's relevant. It was relevant then and it's relevant now as well. It was relevant in Jesus' day, which we'll see was a day of relatively easy divorce. And it's relevant in our day where we struggle with the same topic. And what we're going to see here is that uh, j- just the, the obvious fact on the surface that leads us even in this conversation, that the hardness of marriage leads some to divorce. But we're going to see here through the eyes and through the words of Jesus that there's something more basic, something more fundamental, more important for us to understand than to understand divorce. Jesus says, actually, it's much, much more essential that we understand first marriage. And that's what he ends up speaking about here. So we're going to see these three things about marriage in our passage. We're going to see the problem of marriage and the purpose of marriage and the promise of marriage. Those three things. First, the problem of marriage is... As we've said, uh, the, the Pharisees come with this question, it, you know, is it lawful to divorce? They lived in, in a culture where people were certainly tempted to do that, as we do as well. Because marriage is hard and sometimes people want out. So can they, can they do that? The Pharisees come and ask. Can, can they get divorced? Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, th- there's some uh, cultural background of first century Jewish life and culture that, that we need to understand to make sense of what Jesus is saying. So we're going to do a little bit of a little bit of heavy lifting with that. Okay, the Pharisees come and say, is it lawful to divorce? Now, they're actually asking more than seems on the page here. If we were to only have this passage in the Gospels or in in Scripture about divorce, it would seem on the surface that Jesus is saying that there is never any acceptable reason for divorce, and every time someone does divorce, the result is that it causes adultery. But there's more to it than that. Um, they're not simply asking, is it lawful ever to divorce? Because the answer for the Pharisees who asked this question, and for every Jew in their culture, and for every Roman in the society around them, and Jesus' answer would have been yes. That, that there is law provision for that. In fact, we're going to look at that in a minute, that they're looking back to a law in Deuteronomy 24 that says, if someone divorces, then here's what you do. See, Moses and the law did make provision for divorce. Okay, so what, what, what is going on here? There's a... Um, A parallel passage to this in Matthew chapter 19, the exact same story, the exact same incident, uh, where we get slight changes in in the phrases that Jesus uses in the Pharisees. The Pharisees in Matthew 19, again, same conversation come, and Matthew gives a fuller version of their question. They say to Jesus, is it lawful for a person to get divorced for any reason? Okay? For any reason... Uh, carried huge cultural freight for them because it was in the first century uh, it was a very live debate among Israelites about what constitutes a legitimate reason for divorce now here's here's all the the extra information that you get to enjoy and impress your friends with uh, there was uh, this debate centered around the teaching of two different rabbis first century Judaism uh, the the rabbi Shammai and the rabbi Hillel okay Shammai's uh, stance was that you could that scripture was teaching you could only get married you could only get divorced in case adultery had happened in a marriage. The school of Hillel took a more liberal view and they said that there are a lot more reasons that you can get divorced. And it all centers on Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to read verse 1 for you. You might just want to make a note of it. But here's what Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 it goes on through verse 4. I'll just read the first verse. When a man takes a wife and marries her If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
And he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And, and the verse goes on from there. But it's setting up a situation in which a husband could send away a wife uh, for the words that we have in our English translation, for some indecency in her. Now, it's a confusing Hebrew phrase. It was confusing for first century Jews. So the followers of Shammai looked at that and said, some indecency means one thing. It means some sort of sexual immorality, some sort of adultery. And the followers of Hillel looked at that and said, there are actually two words here. And it means some sort of sexual immorality or some other matter. And they took some other matter to be opening up the barn door and letting anything else in. They had a very liberal view of divorce. And so, uh, as you might imagine in their culture, the, the majority went with this view of Hillel, that there are many reasons for divorce. And the things that the rabbis record in some of the cases they navigate are things like this. You know, if you come home and you decide that your wife simply doesn't please you anymore, then you can write her a certificate of divorce and send her out. If your wife, you know, burns your dinner, and you don't want to live with that anymore. I mean, it, you know, we kind of, we kind of chuckle, but, but, but I really am being serious. I mean, they were, there were cases like that. It was, it was that wide open. And so when the Pharisees come and ask this question, they're not just saying, is it possible to get divorced? They're asking this specific question. Jesus, is it possible to get divorced for any reason? Jesus, do you have this view of divorce, or do you have a more restrictive view of divorce? Okay, that is, that is the question that's on the table for them. They were in a culture of easy divorce. In many ways, like we are, it's uh, maybe a little bit akin to the idea of no-fault divorce. Except that, in their culture, only the, only the husband could initiate the divorce. Only a husband could divorce his wife. There was provision that if a wife had a case against her husband, she could go to the rabbi and he could rule in her favor and then they would turn to the husband and try to pressure him to write a certificate of divorce for the woman, but it had to come from him. In fact, this Deuteronomy 24 passage in many ways was a protection to women in a very patriarchal society where they could not simply be cast out without a legitimate certificate of divorce. If they could be, they could, they could be cast out with no means of support, with no means of ever being remarried unless they could prove that they had been legally divorced by their husband. In many ways, it's a concession to the weakness of the situation that women found themselves in in that culture. Uh, so their cultural view is sometimes you, you're in a marriage and, and you want to get out of it. Jesus, can you, can you do that? Can you do that for any reason? Now, again, just side note, I want to be very careful because this brings up very powerful issues for many of us. Jesus' teaching that we're looking at here in Mark chapter 10 tells us certain things about what he believed and what the New Testament teaches us about divorce. It is not the only passage that bears on divorce. Okay? Matthew 19 records this conversation. Both of them presuppose... Uh, a legitimate reason for divorce in the case of adultery. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks abandon, about abandonment of one spouse from another. So the Bible does speak more than just in this passage. And I just want to be careful to say that so that we can know that the Bible has other things to say, but also hear what this passage has to say to us and what Jesus wants us to focus on when he comes with this conversation to the Pharisees because he does have some pointed things for us to say. The Pharisees look in verse 2. It says they ask this question to test him. And I think this test is happening at a couple different levels. One, live in a culture of easy divorce and uh, easy divorce that was welcomed by the people. And so now he's coming to Jesus, this very popular teacher whom they do not like, and putting him out there. They're saying, okay, Jesus, what is your opinion on divorce? 
Let's stand back and see what he says and see what the crowds are going to think about his answer now. Are they going to still love Rabbi Jesus? And then there's another dimension as well. It says that he is preaching in the, in the region of Jerusalem and Judea. Um, many scholars think that maybe where he's preaching actually is right around the Jordan River where um, John the Baptist preached. And if you remember what happened to John the Baptist, where he was preaching, it was in the region that was controlled by Herod Antipas. He was the ruler. And Herod Antipas had married the wife of his brother Philip, Herodias, and she had divorced Philip so that she could marry Herod. And John the Baptist spoke out against this marriage, said that it was illegal, that it shouldn't happen. And what happened to John the Baptist? He lost his head for coming up against the king, uh, Herod Antipas. And so right back again in Herod's territory, the Pharisees are lobbing this grenade to Jesus. What do you think about divorce? Are you going to speak about divorce when the ruler of this territory is married to a divorced woman and one person's already lost their life over that? We would hate to see you go, Jesus, right? <laughs> to Jesus, their enemy. So they are testing him. And Jesus gives his evaluation, his answer to this debate. Look at what he says in verse 5. This is what he goes to. He says, Moses has given you this uh, command in Scripture that someone can divorce and send away with a certificate of divorce. But why? He says that Moses gave you this because of your hardness of heart. See, the Pharisees come wanting to ask about the boundaries and the limits and the laws, and he comes right to the heart of it and says, the whole reason we are having this discussion is because of the hardness of your heart. Now, be careful. He's not simply saying that anyone who has ever sued for divorce is doing that out of a hard heart. As we've said, the Bible does talk about some particular cases. But he is saying that in any marriage that has fallen apart and in a culture that loves divorce, it comes from hardness of heart. Because he goes on to say that this is not the way it is meant to be. This is not the way we are to look at our marriages. Uh, because he goes on to say that essentially we, we've got it all backwards when we come to this question. Well, one commentator put it this way as he speaks, as, Jesus, as he comments on Jesus flipping this around and showing them they've been looking at it from the wrong, wrong angle. He says, you do not learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. And he goes on, you will not be successful in war if you train by the rules for beating a retreat. You hear what he's saying? He's saying to the Pharisees, look, you're looking at when this goes all wrong, and that is not the way to learn about what marriage is meant to be and where marriages are supposed to go. It's like other questions that we ask that are essentially this. What are the boundaries? What are the limits? What can I do and what can't I do? Okay, it's the kind of question we have in mind where we, we may not say this literally, but uh, when you are... Uh, figuring out what you're going to eat for lunch or for dinner, and you're looking at the back of the cans and the boxes, and you're, you're trying to figure out what the calorie count is so that you can figure out, you know, is this too many calories for me to eat, or can I get away with it? You know, sort of versus what would it mean for me to be healthy <laughs> and take care of my body? You know, it's how many calories am I taking in or not? Or, or maybe a much better example, maybe closer to the heart of this. The question that uh, you may have asked, many of us ask, and is a perennial question in dating life, how far is too far, right? How far is too far? How, dating this person, like how far can we go before it crosses that line and it's too far? Tell me exactly what the boundaries are so that I can come right up to the line and I might be teetering over, but I won't be technically guilty, right? How far is too far? Rather than, 
God, you've allowed this person in my life. How do, how, do I, how do I honor this person? How do I treat them as a brother or sister in Christ? How do I treat them in such a way that we would never need to be ashamed whether I marry this person or someone else does? What does it mean for me to encourage godliness and growth in this person? What does it mean to actually act in love towards this person? Very different than, you know, what, what's the limit? How far is too far? The Pharisees were asking, how far is too far? Like, when can we finally divorce? Well, Jesus says they are missing the point. Instead of beginning with the question of divorce, of how marriage may end, they must begin instead with the purpose of marriage, what marriage actually is. Point two, the purpose of marriage. Here's what Jesus says. When they ask about it, he, and they go to this clause of divorce, Jesus actually goes back to a different passage from Moses. He goes not to Deuteronomy, but to Genesis 2, to the story of creation and the creation of man and woman and the creation of marriage. You know, in other words, he's saying to the Pharisees, look, you want to talk about divorce, but let's go back here to Genesis because what we really need to talk about is marriage. And so that's what Jesus uh, speaks about here in these verses. And look what he says. He says, you know, in the beginning, God made humanity. He made them male and female. And so he says, therefore, a man will leave his husband and he'll uh, cleave to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Now, even if you've never picked up the Bible and read it or heard these words read from Genesis, if you've been to a wedding or enough, you've, you've heard these words, you know, that you leave your parents, that you go and cleave to a spouse. But maybe we don't really understand actually the weight of what the Bible teaches us about what that means. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, and he's telling us, perhaps, that we have lost sight of the big and beautiful picture of what marriage is and is meant to be. He says to them, you are settling for far too little. There's a picture here of this incredible oneness and connection when Jesus speaks from these verses in Genesis about uh, the, the two becoming one flesh. It comes right out again out of Genesis chapter 2. In, in the background here, uh, God has created Adam and he's put him over all of the earth. And he takes Adam and he has him name all the animals of the earth. And so he goes through this process of God bringing them two by two to him, that he might name them. And he sees that every animal in all of creation has this mate, this match, this one that fits him, everyone but Adam. And it, you get to the end of that scene and it says, but, but, no, uh, but no partner, but no helper was found for Adam. See, God already knew that at the beginning. He had said, God looked and saw that it was not good that Adam was alone. So then he takes him through this process of opening Adam's eyes to see that it is not good for him to be alone. And when he does, Adam is ready. He is ready to meet the one that was made for him. Genesis 2 tells us that God puts him to sleep and he takes a rib and he forms Eve from that and he presents her to Adam. And when he does that, Adam gives uh, the world's first poetry. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He looks at Eve and he says, at last, here is the one that is like me yet different. Here is the one who fits me. Here is the peace that I have been missing. When Jesus looks at these verses from Genesis, that's what he is evoking. The power of what it means that God has created us male and female and calls us for those whom he calls into a marriage relationship like this. That the two shall become one. This bond is incredibly strong. And that means it cannot be taken apart without causing incredible pain and damage. Again, the Bible talks in other places about times in which emergency surgery must be done. But what Jesus is pointing to here is that that kind of separation cannot happen without a great rending 
a rending of lives, a rending of bodies, that this causes great destruction in its wake. And maybe a, an, a, an, an image of that would help. W- one way maybe we could think about marriage or one take on it and this oneness would be like a three-legged race. You've seen a three-legged race. You've got a guy and a girl standing together. They tie together the, the middle leg with a couple handkerchiefs or something, and they shuffle on down the uh, field you know, trying to get to the end. And Maybe they, they fall and wipe out in the middle, and whatever happens, they look sort of awkward and silly. But ha- however the race ends, whether you cross the finish line or you fall in the middle, at the end of the day, what do you do? You, un- you untie the handkerchief or you cut them off, and you're done, and you go your separate ways, right? Well, maybe here's a better picture of what two becoming one and what that kind of oneness is meant to be. Instead of a three-legged race, picture this. Uh, a, a two-seater jet flying in the air. And in, in the middle of the flight, w- one or both uh, marriage partners pulls the eject lever. And what happens? It blows off the canopy. It shoots them out of the plane in different directions. And uh, people often get hurt or die in the midst of coming out of ejecting you might, you might float down over the ocean. You might float into a tree. A plane is going to crash and be destroyed. You see, that's what he's saying the rending of a marriage is like. It's like pulling the eject button when you're going full speed and hoping everything's going to turn out okay. And so Jesus, for these reasons, he comes to his conclusion about this question. Jesus, is it okay to divorce for any reason? Verse 9, Jesus' summary. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. See, because of who we are, because of what marriage was created to be, because of what this bond is, he says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. He, he doesn't say it's impossible for man to separate. It's impossible for a person to actually divorce. He says, don't do it. Don't do it. It is that dangerous. It is that difficult. It is that contrary to the way things were made to go. In Matthew 19, in that version of this story, when when the disciples hear this, they kind of scratch their heads and say this, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. You know, they're afraid in in a culture of easy divorce when they hear this. I'm not sure I want to get into that kind of relationship then. And Jesus answered him. He says, you know, some people uh, can't get married for various reasons. Some people choose not to. There is such thing as celibacy, and that might be right for some people. But the model we get in Scripture of the norm for God's people, too, is one of marriage. And the truth is, to, to get married, as in any kind of relationship, in other words, to love, there is always inherent risk. It's always a risk. Listen to the way uh, C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Four Loves. He said it this way, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So what are we going to do? That's the catch that we're in. Where are we going to find the help? Where are we going to find the power that we need for marriage if it's going to have a chance? Uh, Point number three, we see the promise of marriage because we are given a promise and assurance right here in the middle of this passage. 
Look in verses 7 through 9 and look at the progression that Jesus explains about people moving towards marriage. He says that a man shall leave his family, uh, his family of birth, his parents. He will, he will hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. And then verse 9, what does he say? What God has joined together. Now, do you hear the switch there? He describes the experience of how people get married, and maybe you've been in the situation where you were the one who actually asked someone to marry you, and you know the, uh, the sheer terror of that moment at some level where you think, is that person going to, maybe it's just me, I was thinking, is, <laughs> is Elizabeth going to say yes, right? So you go, and what do you do? You, you leave your family, and you come, and you ask that you might get married, that you might give your life to someone, and as you do that, you know that, y- that you are acting, and if, if you respond and say yes, you know that you, you're, you're acting. You're you're stepping into this marriage. You're doing it. But then at the same time, what do we hear here? What God has joined together. Do you hear that? That underneath our actions, our pursuit of marriage, like everything else in life, stands the sovereign hand of God. God has brought you together. God has joined you together. And think about the implications that has for your marriage or for you if you think about marriage one day. If he says this to you, that God has brought you together, that means that five years down the road, you don't stop and look at each other and think, why in the world did I marry you? I have made a terrible mistake. And at some level, you think maybe this, you know, I must have been disobedient to God. Maybe I have somehow chosen plan B for my life, and I've missed plan A, that God really wanted me to marry someone else, or not get married at all, or certainly not marry this person, and yet I have. And so what am I going to do? I better back up. I better change course. I better get back in line. No. What do we hear here? What God has joined together, let no man separate. And so you can know in those hardest of moments that it is the sovereign God, hand of God that, uh, that rests under you, that has you. Even in those moments where you feel like you are dangling in midair in the midst of your marriage, the Bible tells us that God has you and that he loves his people and that he has brought you together. God is at work in marriage. He's at work in your marriage if you are married. He is committed to that. If you are thinking about marriage, if it's in the distant future for you, and you're like the disciples, hear this and are terrified, what do you need to bank on? God is at work. And so that you can trust him and move forward faithfully with your eyes on him, trusting him to take care of you. But it means that God is in work in the midst of your marriage right now as well. Every marriage is difficult at times. Some marriages are more difficult than others, and some marriages are incredibly difficult. God speaks into all of those and says, trust me, keep your eyes on me, what God has joined together. And when God says that about marriage, he knows of what he speaks, because God is married. Did you realize that? The picture of marriage is one of the central metaphors the Bible uses to speak about God's union, his connection to his people, to us. And it runs right through the Old Testament and on into the New Testament. The Bible points it, paints it this way, that God is married to us. We see it in the Old Testament in some of the prophets in Jeremiah and Hosea in Ezekiel. We see it come into its sharpest focus in the New Testament in Ephesians 5 where Paul speaks about marriage and says, but I'm really talking about Christ, the bridegroom, loving the church, 
His bride. We see it in Revelation 19 where it speaks of Jesus' return and the wedding supper of the Lamb as the bridegroom comes back for His church, His people, the bride. It says we as God's people are wedded to Him. Now let me ask you this. What kind of spouse are we? The Bible has sharp things to say about that. Because God as our spouse and being wedded to his people, knows what it is like to have an unfaithful spouse. The uh, prophets, again, they hit on this repeatedly in Jeremiah, and in Hosea chapter 2, in Ezekiel chapter 16, one of the most graphic chapters in the entire Bible where it describes God uh, wedded to loving his people as a man loves a woman, and he says that you, my people, my spouse, you, you have been like an unfaithful wife, and you have gone off and you have sought out other lovers. You have worshipped other gods. You have given your heart to other things. And that picture of, of idolatry and turning from God runs straight through the Bible as well. That we are people who turn our hearts to other things, who chase after other things. John Calvin put it this way, our, our hearts are idol factories. That we are churning them out. That we are easily distracted. That we are an unfaithful spouse. Well, what does God do with his unfaithful spouse? Cast her away forever? Never to be picked up again. Does he sue for divorce? Does he claim his rights? In the Old Testament, and we read this in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, uh, within God's theocracy, Old Testament Israel, if, a, uh, if someone committed adultery, then the penalty for that adultery was, uh, was death. So if uh, somebody was uh, in an adulterous relationship, uh, cheated on their spouse, they would be put to death and the person with whom they'd had this relationship would be put to death. That it was seen that seriously that divorce, or excuse me, that adultery was, um, was that serious a breach. And we see when we get to the New Testament that death still is um, the penalty for spiritual adultery against God. God actually upholds that. But here's the thing that we see. That in our breach with God, though we deserve death, we don't receive death. Though we deserve it, he does not give it to us. What happens instead? Instead of the guilty spouse being put to death, in this case, the innocent spouse goes willingly to death. You see, that's what's happening at the cross. When Christ, who is our bridegroom, in the face of our abandonment of him, in the face of our spiritual adultery against him, what does he do? He takes the death penalty for us. He goes to the cross that he might pay for our sin, that we might be wiped clean, that we might have the scarlet A taken off of our chest, that we might be dressed again in righteousness, in the very righteousness of Christ, that Christ goes and dies to set us, his spouse, free. And he does not stay dead. He's raised again from the dead for our righteousness, for our, for our forgiveness, that we might be washed clean, that he might give us and we might be guaranteed of unending, life-changing love brought to us by Jesus, never to be broken. He does that for us, the unfaithful spouse. And you see, we must grasp hold of that, what he has done for us, the unfaithful lover, if we're going to be able to move into our own marriages, giving grace and giving love to another for a lifetime. See, the key for us in actually being married, 
and actually loving our spouse faithfully, even in the hardest of times, is exactly this, the gospel. And, and maybe you've lost sight of this, even today. Maybe you see or you are beginning to see your spouse as a rival or an enemy or some sort of impediment to your happiness and your fulfillment in life. We must hear what Jesus tells us. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And that means separate with a capital S, but it also means separate with a little s as well. Don't withdraw. Don't give up hope. Don't wall yourself off from your spouse, even though you might still share the same home. See, the gospel takes us to these keys to loving our spouse. One, that we must know the gospel is true for us. You must know that Christ loves you with that kind of love. That even in all the uncertainty as it feels of every other area of your life, even in the felt uncertainty for you maybe of your marriage, does my spouse love me? Because sure, looking like it doesn't. He doesn't. She doesn't. Then we must hear this. Christ, who is our greater spouse, loves you. And he has you. Whatever else may come. And you must know that and take it down into your heart if you're going to be able to then love a spouse who is difficult to love. And it means not only looking back to what Christ has done for us on the cross, but know that this very same Christ is the one who is alive, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, the one that we come to and pray and ask for strength and ask for grace to be able to enter into the difficulties of marriage or the contours of any part of our life. We come to him asking for his help daily, looking to him to supply supernatural strength that we don't have on our own. And you see, when we get to that point where we simply do not have the strength, it is not a surprise to God. Of course you don't. You must come to God for the strength that only He can give. And as He gives you that strength, it will feel like moving forward on your knees in utter weakness. But He will come and give you enough. And many of us may well see Him do even greater work than that, that He might come and really bring a marriage back to life. See, we're never going to be able to have a marriage that sings, that lives and breathes God's grace if we don't hold on to the gospel, that it is true for us, and that it calls us to move in love towards our spouse. It is possible, maybe, that if you're in the middle of a bad marriage, you can grit your teeth and say something like this, for the sake of my children, I am going to hang on because I don't want harm for them. Or maybe it's something like this. You grit your teeth and say, I simply cannot get divorced because of the financial ramifications that's going to cause for me. So I'm going to simply just try to set my jaw and endure this. You know, maybe you can muster the strength for that. But it will be a marriage in name only. And Christ has more for you than that. Not simply that you don't sign a piece of paper. Not simply that you continue to live in the same house. But he wants to come and bring life and healing and restoration to your marriage. Remember, Christ is in the business of raising the dead. And he can do that here as well. Let me just say this in conclusion. One final word. Some of you have known the reality of a failed marriage in your own life. Some of you may well be uh, responsible for the bitter reality of a failed marriage in your life. What does the gospel say to you? The gospel is for you, even in this area of life. Even if that for you has meant uh, a divorce that was not for biblical reasons. A divorce that was uh, for any reason. A divorce that brought incredible pain and havoc and continued sin. Even if it's that, 
Christ says to you, you can be forgiven in me. And if you are in me, you are forgiven. Even that. There is no divorce is the greatest sin that cannot be overcome. You need to hear that the gospel is true for you. And that it reaches down to the depths of that or whatever else you are holding in your heart. The cross is that strong. As we've seen, it is not because the marriage uh, bond is to be taken lightly. It's incredibly strong. But Christ's forgiving love is stronger still than a broken marriage. If you are in Christ, you stand before him even now, forgiven and clothed in righteousness. In this area of life, as all others, because for God's people, grace wins. So may we see the, he, the reality of God's grace healing and forgiving and transforming us, not only in the midst of a failed marriage, but also in the midst of a failing marriage, or in the, way, uh, or in the midst of even the, the normal struggles of married life. May we see more and more marriages saved, marriages restored, marriages transformed to the glory of God. He can do it, and he has us. Let's pray.